When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Hi, this is Marion Bartoli. I'm Mats Villander. This is Mary Carrillo. I'm Stan Wawrinka. I'm Leighton Hewitt. I'm Andy Murray. This is Yannick Noah, and you're listening to the Tennis Podcast. Well, hello, folks, and greetings from the other side of Christmas. That's over and done with. Alleluia. <laughs> How are we doing, David and Matt? All right. Yeah, we have. Uh, uh, there were good bits. Cheese. You know, you've definitely got me onto cheese. I, I've had lots of that uh, and a few few drinks. Um, and no, it's been it's been lovely actually, uh, hanging out with my kids, etc. But uh, please start tennis, please. Matt, I believe, I don't want to misquote you, but you are starting to miss tennis now. Breaking news. Yes, I'm worthy of my place on the tennis podcast again. (laughs) (laughs) What what was the low point of Christmas that made you suddenly wish tennis was happening again? Oh, all of it. (laughs) I was reminded of that email sign-off that Mary Carello has. The world spins and we hang on. That that sort of feels like what the last month has been, really. And yeah. now I'm ready for for some tennis to start again. Imagine being cool enough to have your own signature email sign-off. Yeah, And, and not be lame. Is. I'm sure some really lame people have them, and it's really uncool. Yeah. Um, it's, a, it's, a t- it's a tightrope to be walking. but I, I'm, um, I'm at, peace, at peace with not ever being as cool as mary so you know i'll just leave it at that um we've got part three of sliding doors tennis we've also got some news to bring you up to date with which we'll be doing in just a moment but first the big news is that david has been challenged by solly hole simon on thursday we record this on monday david you're going to accept the gauntlet that has been thrown down don't think so no. <laughs> too much cheese and booze not like you yeah. david too busy. Got another podcast to record on Thursday, and the kids are still not at school. You so, never uh, want to, th- to deny a gauntlet. Yeah, no, but I beat gauntlet. him. I, I beat him last time, so you know. Oh, right. I don't want to ruin you it. Want, this is your way of preserving your streak. <laughs> yeah. Right. I'm on an I unbeaten see. run, and I'm just going to enjoy the yeah. afterglow for a little while longer. Definitely the mindset of a champion. 
definitely. So Simon, if, if you're listening, that's a no. <laughs> um, well, Roger Federer has decided to do the same, David. It's right. a no to the Australian Open. Simon's going to love being put in the same <laughs> sentence. Thank you, Solihull Simon, for giving me a, a lovely segue. Uh, Roger Federer uh, announced, well, didn't quite announce, but the, the news came out yesterday uh, via Tony Godsick, his agent, and the Associated Press that Roger Federer will not be travelling to Australia, will not be playing the Australian Open or any warm-up events and will return to action after Melbourne whenever and wherever that might be, um, which is obviously hugely disappointing news, not wholly unexpected unless you're the Australian Open or certainly the Australian Open PR department, bless them. Um, but it, it it's incredibly disappointing nonetheless and also leaves you with this, and I'm sure it leaves Roger Federer with this as well, slightly inert feeling of of the knowledge that we might never see Roger Federer play the Australian Open again. That is a a real possibility now. Or, or anywhere. Uh, I mean, oh, lovely. Just, <laughs> just, just to expand on it, if, if you went back six months and somebody told you that Roger Federer won't play the Australian Open, I'm sh- I think we would probably have said, well, why? He's having all these months off. He's having his two surgeries. He's going to be fine by the Australian Open. It was a surprise to me to hear what he said a few weeks ago that he was in a race against time. I wasn't expecting that. I'm ap- I was absolutely expecting once he'd said that for him not to play the Australian Open this time, no matter what uh, Craig Tiley had said. It, it was. It always seemed to me that he was just, you know, building towards that and letting us down in instalments a little bit. Um, and, you know, obviously wanted to be respectful to the Australian Open, etc. But he wasn't going to be ready. And he also wasn't, he didn't say this specifically, but he probably isn't that keen on sitting for two weeks in uh, in quarantine, you know, without his family maybe and all that sort of thing. But the the reason I've just said, will he ever play again, is because at that age and with two surgeries to that knee, you just don't know whether it is going to be playable again really that part of the body um i mean i i, I hope obviously i hope it, it will be and and i i think it probably will be but i'm definitely now comfortable to sort of look at it and think well, it's possible that as much as he is totally focusing his efforts on wimbledon the olympics and the us open maybe he might get close build up that training and it just not be doable yeah, I think there's two scenarios here. I think there's there's one that the knee is still a massive question mark. And in, in that case, yeah, I think the question has to be asked whether we'll ever see him play again. Because if it's not fit now after, what, 10 months, then why would 11 months be enough? Why would 12 months be enough? Um, scenario two is that the knee is okay, but general... General fitness-wise, he's examined his canister and he sees one summer's worth of tennis in it. And he is choosing to deploy that in a way that maximises his chances of of achieving what remaining realistic goals he has. And then in an enjoyable setting. I'm not trying to diss the Australian Open, but it would be an ordeal. It's going to be an ordeal for everybody, isn't it? It would, but it's still 
even let's say it's scenario two, it's a big gamble for a guy that said he's got no appetite to play without crowds. Because at the moment, and things can, can change, hopefully not for the worse with the Australian Open. At the moment, the Australian Open is the best and only chance this year of being guaranteed to play in a normal-ish situation with with crowds. There are absolutely no guarantees that even if Federer is is fully fit for at any stage later this year, he will be able to play what feels like normal tennis and what feels like the kind of tennis that he wants to go out on. So it's it's a heck of a gamble. Mm-hmm. To offer a slither of optimism. It, yes, please. <laughs> it, it doesn't sound to me like he's had another setback. Mm. Like I think the reason he's behind schedule is because of the original setback he had a few months ago. Is it better to have one year-long setback or two, <laughs> two six-month setbacks? I think he was knocked for six by a setback he had after the original knee surgery. And it's almost like he had to start again. So he's way behind schedule. Mm. Um We've seen pictures of him hitting tennis balls, which, as I gather, hadn't been happening that much throughout this year. He's finally hitting again. So I think it's possible that he is moving in the right direction with the knee. But I totally agree with you that even if he is moving in that right direction, there are still question marks over his general fitness and certainly the longevity that he's got left in him and whether it is anything longer than just a condensed period next summer. That was meant to be the optimistic note. (laughs) (laughs) Imagine, imagine he, what do we think, makes his return for the grass? Stuttgart, could Stuttgart be the place? I could, could be. I mean, the, the way they're talking uh, and all reports, I mean, Tony Godsick was talking about February and, and looking at the schedule thereafter. And obviously, there are still big question marks. It looks like Indian Wells isn't going to happen. It looks like Miami may not happen. So that, and is he really going to bother with the clay? They're, these are all a lot. There are a lot of big question marks in, in the schedule. But there is... Dubai at the end of February, which is where he bases himself a lot of the time. That may be mm. where he decides to play, um, maybe somewhere in Europe before it. But yeah, I, I mean, I can only imagine that the goal is going to be just to concentrate on trying to make sure he's ready during that spell. But what's the best way to be ready for that spell? That's that's a question mark I don't know the answer to. Yeah, I do think there's a scenario in which Federer's body is okay, but he doesn't want to come back at a slam in Australia where he can't be with his family and therefore Mm. he's pushing it back just a few weeks and as you said trying to play Dubai if that goes ahead or if if it's a normal February swing maybe Rotterdam or something Um, he doesn't want to push it for a slam as his first event back I think that's I think that's possible that that is the case didn't want to risk getting stuck with Benoit Pair as his practice partner, did he? <laughs> My dad had a go at me for being too harsh on Benoit Pair. Oh yeah, what what were his grounds? He just said he seems like an all right chap, and I said I'm 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 not slagging off his whole character. I'm just suggesting his track record might not make him seemingly the most sort of COVID safe person to isolate with for for two weeks. 
I'm not what, trashing what? his whole character. I also got accused, not by any family members, but in an email email correspondence recently of being anti-horse. I'd like to set the record straight on that. I'm not. I'm definitely not anti-horse. I love horses. <laughs> I just, you know, in the specific Martina Hingis related incident, the the horse didn't come off Tina. Didn't wasn't the hero of the hour. But, <laughs> but generally. Very much, very much pro horse. <laughs> Even my Oli thinks she was. <laughs> <laughs> Would Mr. Whitaker have Benoit Pair on the boat? Oh, do ask. I, I will ask, but I, I don't think he should. <laughs> well, he does I mean, tend to like sort of flashy, flashy crew members. Let's you know, leave, let's leave it to the man himself to make up his own mind. Okay. Um, Yes, all right. He'll be annoyed if I speak on, be on my brief again about Ben Marpair. Mm-hmm. Um So I, sh- I shan't do that. Otherwise, they very much enjoy. Oh, he also didn't enjoy how much we laughed at your your 2010 predictions, David. I've, I like Re- you, really Dad. stuck up for you. Yeah, really stuck up for 2010, David Law. Thank you, Mr. Well, I don't know where he was at the time, but well, um, I, I I will take those thanks and uh, live off them. Yeah. So there we go. Um, Take those kind words. In right. other slightly more, well, yes, more optimistic uh, tennis news before we move on to talking about the glorious past. Uh, Andy Murray has been uh, awarded a wild card for the Australian Open. No great surprise. He has also accepted a wild card into the Delray Beach Open starting on January the 5th. Um, I found that interesting, yeah. Me too. I found that very interesting. I mean, it doesn't surprise me that he's looking for warm-up tennis ahead of ahead of Melbourne, looking for as, as much tennis as possible. It surprises me that it's that it's that tennis. I mean, mm. I thought that Delray Beach Open would kind of be an exclusively American field, pretty yeah. much. Yeah, it really does add interest, doesn't it, f- for us particularly, and and I think for the event itself, what a great coup for them. Um, mm. But, I mean, I think, Matt, you said his first match is one in the morning our time. I'll be up. Yeah, they've already announced their yes. order of play. <laughs> we don't <laughs> know their full player field, tennis. but we do know uh, when Andy Murray's playing. And it's not at a convenient hour. <laughs> we don't even know who he's playing, do we? We just know he is playing. Yes. Right. Yeah, I mean, you can't blame them for, for milking it, can you? I mean, as you no. say, massive coup. I mean, the rest of that field could be... Let's face it; it could be ropey, couldn't it? I mean, I would. I I, re, I have no idea about this, but I would presume Andy Murray might be flying by private jet to Florida, and that might make him might make it feel like less of a a risk, a slightly safer option than it otherwise might. I've no idea if that's the case, but you know, if I had the option to go by private jet somewhere rather than travel with uh, other people on a plane that's certainly what I'd be doing um but yeah I mean even within the United States I mean I know a lot of players do base themselves in Florida but it's going to be interesting to see who wants to travel into Florida because they're certainly one of the looser states COVID restrictions wise you know compared to California for example which have been incredibly strict pretty much throughout um, yeah, the the other three big names on their list 
all playing players TBA, <laughs> but, but all <laughs> scheduled on Thursday, Friday, Saturday and Sunday, uh, back to back, Riley Opelka, John Isner and Milos Raonic. Uh, and then they've got a, uh, a Champions uh, uh, exhibition event before it with the Bryan brothers playing and Tommy Haas and people like that. They've already transitioned into Champions Tennis, the Bryan brothers. <laughs> wow. Um, yeah, well, with Apelka, Isner and Raonic as a trio, they needed they needed something to sort of aggregate the playing styles off a little bit, didn't mm. they? They needed yeah. some Andy Murray in, in the recipe mix. Not sure I'll be watching them at one o'clock in the morning. <laughs> <laughs> I'll tell you, the way I'm feeling right now, I will be there when Riley Opelka kicks things (laughs) off on Thursday night. I'm telling you. David will be cheering him onto court. I've missed you, Riley. (laughs) You and me, Riley. We can can look almost eye to eye. Uh, And then the gags about David being the tall person correspondent will ensue. And then it'll all be merry. All will be well with the world. Maybe I'll get a call for work. (laughs) I haven't had many of them recently. Um, I think that's it for tennis news, unless we have any other pairings news, which I don't think we do. It's been a bit thin thin on the ground. Anyone would think sort of Christmas had been on or something, but we are desperate for news of female pairings. We will accept flimsy gossip at this yeah. stage. So at tennis podcast. We've done, at tennis we've podcast, done two please whole let sections us know. worth of flimsy gossip. So frankly, we'll ex- accept just speculation. Yeah. Um, uh, so yes, absolutely desperate for that. And as soon as we have it, we'll bring it to you. Uh, but we should. I think we've dwelled too long in the miserable present. I think we should head back to the lovely past. Oh, it's not com- that lovely. Comfort zone. Oh, okay. <laughs> Maybe I, use somebody else's first. Have I overbuild it? <laughs> okay, Matt, what have you got? Uplift us, please. <laughs> okay, I'm going to present to you a little medley of oh. Roger Federer, actually, sliding doors moments. I love a medley. Before arriving at one which I will declare the official Roger Federer sliding door moment, if that's okay. Mm-hmm. Go for um, it. And I think he's he's interesting because he is the ultimate achiever in tennis, isn't he, Federer? He's won more than any male player in history. And yet, because he's put himself in that winning position so often, he's inevitably lost a lot of big important matches as well i think there's a comparison with jack nicholas in golf it's a fascinating stat about him that he won 18 majors but he finished runner-up 19 times so he's kind of a what-if guy because what if he'd won a few of those he could be so far ahead of everyone else ever and never be caught he was runner-up in 19 majors yeah so he was he finished second more than even one so he's kind of a what-if guy even though he's the most successful in major golf and Federer's similar he's um he's lost the most finals ever 11 joint with Lendl and he's lost um the second most semi-finals ever just one behind Jimmy Connors so he's lost a lot of big matches essentially but I think there's probably three matches or moments which got away from him more than any others um the first i want to talk about is the 2005 australian open which Mm -hmm. was slap bang in the middle of federer's dominance 
in from 2004 to 2007, he won 11 of the 12 slams on either grass or hard court. And the only one he didn't win was that 2005 Australian Open when he lost in the semi-finals classic match to Marat Safin, who went on to win the title. Um, Federer is serving at 6-5 in the fourth set tiebreak. He's two sets to one up. He has a match point and he's serving volleys on second serve. Hits a couple of fantastic volleys, although... Henman might disagree, but fantastic volleys. <laughs> Relatively speaking. <laughs> and um, Safin comes up with an incredible lob, gets it over his head. Federer, I hesitate to use the word sprint back. He sort of slightly ambles back. He has more it, time. It's a saunter. Mm. And he goes mm. for the tweener. He goes for the glory shot and he misses it. And a little sliding doors moment there is what if Federer had thrown up a lob? He's still not the favourite to win that rally. Safin would still have likely won it, but it's very possible that Federer could have dug out that point defensively and won it. And that, that, is, a, that is a match, a moment, a tournament in the prime of his career that kind of got away from Federer, I would say. He would have been playing Leighton Hewitt in the final and absolutely been the favourite for that. Um, and I think just the the mental aspect of... Losing match point, having hit an unnecessary tweener. Mm. I mean, not um, not many people have been in that situation, um, especially not in such such a high stakes version of it. But I mean, that must just be crippling. He he got panned for that tweener attempt. I I would say it it felt to me like overkill, really. The, the the criticism he got for it because as you say I still think no matter what shot he plays at that particular point he's he's second favourite in the rally um, and he's still at parity in the tie break it's not like it's it's ended his chance of winning at that point that that momentary but people really went for him over that and I, I never really understood that how did Federer respond to being criticised for that did he just brush it off. I, I, I can't say I remember completely. My, my sense is irrita- irritation right. mm. at it. Um, th- it was an incredible match. I commentated on it. And um, it was just, it had everything he wanted. As you say, Federer pretty much at his best. But Safin, on one of those rare occasions when he also produced his best, because mm. he didn't do it that often. Mm. He was either not bothered enough or he wasn't focused enough or wasn't fit enough. He obviously had a lot of injuries. But at that point, he was being coached by Peter Lundgren himself. And it was the, the big story was that here, here was this, we were talking about how Melise beat Henman with David Felgate in his box shortly afterwards. And I think uh, Lundgren stopped working with Federer at the end of 2003. And, and that was despite having won Wimbledon and the Tour Finals. And then he stopped working with him. Um, Federer obviously then went on to have that incredible 4 where he won three of the four slams, I think, didn't he? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and then turns up in 05, but he's he's with Safin, is Lundgren. And I, I interviewed Lundgren the day after Federer lost to Safin. Um, and he said, Marat really wants to push Roger now. He wants to see how far he can push him. Um, 
and that never really happened again you know that that this was the peak this was the the best it got for him wasn't it um very interesting though and and what what about the sliding doors i mean i i would say that the shot itself i i don't i can't look at that and think that it was the difference maker but we'll never know Mm. that was the match that earned me the nickname tennis kathy in my halls at uni (laughs) and it stuck because i i hadn't i was a uni with only a tiny little telly that could just get terrestrial tv so i i had i'd followed the whole tournament listening on the radio david which is which is a funny funny thing because obviously didn't didn't know you then i was um what would that have been two years prior to to meeting you but um Mm. i demanded for that match that it be put on in the common room i stomped my feet and demanded (laughs) and uh i mean i was obviously right by the end it garnered a crowd by the tweener moment everyone was hooked but um before that uh, yeah, it uh, it earned me the rightful nickname Tennis Kathy, and it's aged well. That nickname mm. really has. Mm. Yeah, I love that. <laughs> <laughs> um, I've also picked the 2006 Rome final, which we watched earlier this year, ah. when Federer has some match points against Nadal on clay quite early in their rivalry, and it's it's just. You know, like all these things, it's speculation. But I wonder what would have happened if Federer had won that match against Nadal on clay. Would an early win over him on that surface have unlocked something for him in that rivalry? Would he have been able to carry it into Roland Garros? Because we talked about how much Nadal caused Federer problems with his leftiness and just as a match-up. But there was definitely a mental aspect to Nadal's dominance over Federer in those early years I think and I think you could speculate that if Federer wins that Rome match he takes a lot more confidence into their French Open final just a couple of weeks later Um, and that could have been a bit different for him because he had the game at that stage he was a more complete player than Nadal. We we spent a whole podcast speculating just that Mm. didn't we earlier this year catch it in our archive (laughs) you don't catch me saying that very often but um, yeah, for tennis relived, I think it's worth delving into the archives. And then the final one of this group of three is a selection of matches which Federer has lost from two match points up against Djokovic. The semi-finals at the US Open in 2010 and 2011, and then last year's Wimbledon final. Um the 2010-11 ones, the sliding doors, most obviously, if, is that if Federer had won those, we would have got Federer and Nadal at the US Open because Nadal was waiting in the final both times. I, I think most people, when they think of those matches, they think of Djokovic's slap forehand return onto the line, which is an incredible shot, an incredible moment because it's greeted with silence and Djokovic sticks his arms up at the crowd and implores them to applaud him for that incredible, incredible shot. Federer called it quite lucky, I think, in his press conference afterwards. <laughs> I remember that. That's that, very that was, uh, Hingis. Yes. <laughs> it was actually. It, it really was. And back then, Roger was much more like that, mm. I think. He was much more of the opinion that really, if I <laughs> if I play well, 
you can't do anything about it, yeah. really. And if you did do something about it, you were a bit lucky. Yeah. Um, but but I think it's been slightly forgotten the 2010 US Open because I I would contend that's actually a even more remarkable match point save from Djokovic. A really long rally ensues, and Djokovic saves it with a drive volley forehand from in between the service line and the baseline. It's an incredibly gutsy shot, and he he totally pulls it off. Um, but I think of all the matches Federer would want back. All the moments that I've just mentioned there, I think it, it has to be last year's Wimbledon final. I, I watched that game again. And he, he served consecutive aces to bring up the match points. And the first serve he hits on the match point clips the net. Djokovic is leaning the other way. Honestly, if that is an inch, two inches higher, it's another ace. And he's won that, and he's won that match. Um, as it happens, he, he misses a forehand wide on the first one and then has quite a tentative approach on the second one. And Djokovic, again, so locked in on all these points, hits a kind of perfect forehand passing shot. But that match was, in, in football terms, it was a six-pointer. You know, if Federer mm. wins that, he's he's currently five slams ahead of Djokovic rather than only three. And that feels like such a sliding doors moment and it again that's another one which felt a little bit like it in real time you thought Federer needs to win this here because if he loses these match points we've as I've just laid out we've been here before Djokovic can come back from two match points down there was so much history on the line in that game my um my brother who's a massive Federer fan as as regular listeners will know has a theory based on quite a lot of discussion we've had on the podcast um Mostly this year, actually, I think we've discussed generally Federer's losing from match up, match point up record relative to Djokovic and Nadal's, and it's obviously a lot worse. Math's theory is that Federer has always been a bit of a choker, but for a long part of his career, he was so much better than everyone else that it didn't matter. There you go. Don't you explain the facial expression you did when I said that, David? <laughs> I was surprised. <laughs> yeah, I was surprised. Uh, it's not I, a it's not a fully finesse theory. I'm just tossing mm, it out there to throw some mm. cats among the pigeons. Yeah, I would say I would. I, I don't agree. Go on, Matt. I, I don't necessarily either, but it's an interesting mm. discussion point. I, I've always felt with Federer that his his style of game is not conducive to really high pressure mm. situations because he's he's quite high risk he will go mm. for things whereas Djokovic and Nadal to me have that kind of safety hardwired into their game and it allows them to kind of play normally when they're in tight situations I do think Federer overplays a little bit or slightly rushes or I don't know something mm. In those Isn't that biggest more recent, moments. though? I'm sure it is more recent, yes. Because, be, but, because but, I mean... Sorry, David, but we did comment on that. I don't think he was much point up, but we did comment on that whilst watching that 06 Rome final, yeah, didn't we? Yeah, he overplayed on the forehand, he, for he sure. He overplayed on the forehand, yeah. I, I, I'd love to go back and look at... Uh, a, a, an assembly of his match points won, though, and I, I would imagine quite a lot of them are won by a service winner mm. or something like mm. that. But then I suppose 
I suppose the, the, I'm going to start disproving my own theory here, but how many of those finals that he's won were close? Yeah, not many. You know, he, mm-hmm. he's, we were talking about the Safin match. Coming off that 04 season, he's just beaten Leighton Hewitt, six love, six, seven, six, six love. You know, two bagels in a final um, and just destroying people. So he's very loose. Mm. I suppose the pattern that I feel like you can always rely on for Federer, if, if he's serving for a match, he can just race through the game with a few well-directed serves followed by a forehand, you know. But, yeah, I mean, the close ones, that that's an interesting thing. I'd, I'd, I'd love to go back and, and analyse them. But uh, So we, we pissed off Nadal fans... <laughs> In the last episode, or in both the last episodes? No, it's just me. Just you. You did that. Yeah. But it's all collective, David. We all shoulder shoulder the burden. Well, and today you we've lot, pissed we off. Sometimes get called. You people from the tennis podcast have said. <laughs> I haven't actually arrived at my definitive sliding doors moment yet, and it is a positive one for Federer fans. Go for it, Matt. Because those ones I've mentioned so far. If they've gone the other way, they've all seen him possibly add to 20 slams. To me, they're adding to an already complete career. But the one I think is the definitive sliding doors moment for Federer is a moment which went his way and it it helped to complete his career. And that's the 2009 French Open. Obviously, most obviously, the sliding doors is Nadal losing to Sertling. That's a huge moment in itself. But I think... You can think of that tournament and think Sertling beat Nadal and then Federer won the title. It was like that, but it was a bumpy road to get there. And I'm mainly talking about his round four match with Tommy Haas, which I think is a little bit of a lost in time. I don't think this match is talked about enough. In ter- I'm happy to read it. <laughs> in, in terms of... David remembers every point. <laughs> He's just going to live commentate us through it right now. No, I just, I just want to watch it. <laughs> Federer is basically having a shocker. Nadal has gone out. This is his big chance. And he's two sets to love down against Tommy he's Haas. He's choking. He is. And he's serving at 3-4, 30-40. Break point down. Ooh. And he hits an inside-out forehand that lands plumb on the line if that is a few centimeters further left Tommy Haas is serving for that match to knock Federer out in straight sets Federer nails it holds breaks in the next game completely turns the match around and I just think that's the sliding doors moment because if Federer doesn't win the French Open then would he ever have won the French Open And if he doesn't win it, then how does it impact how he schedules his career for the next decade or so? Does he switch to a bigger racket earlier? I think it throws up all sorts of questions. And if Federer hasn't won the French Open, that changes completely how we think about his legacy and his career compared to, certainly compared to Nadal and Djokovic, who have got all four. So Mm. that, to me, the ramifications of that moment, that tournament, are so huge. Um, And when it mattered most, Federer did come up with the goods on his forehand in that in that match. Yeah, it's it 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 would have the most interesting aspect of that for me is how would it it would have impacted the remainder of his Mm. career, which has obviously turned out to be more than a decade and counting. You know, he wouldn't have been able to 
to skip skip the clay court seasons in order to to maximize his chances at other slams that would have and that every single Roland Garros growing with every year would have been the the dialogue about whether he can finally win that slam and complete the grand slam that complete the career grand slam he would have been he would have been the almost guy the entire complexion of the last 10 years of his career would have would have felt different assuming he didn't clinch one of one of the others over that time which i can't see him i can't see him doing he'd be the odd one out yeah Yeah. against the other two wouldn't he he wouldn't now be in the conversation for greatest of all time you you couldn't put him ahead of let's say it's only that one slam that we take away from him let's say let's say nadal still loses to Serling, but Federer loses to Haas. They're both on 19 now, but Federer doesn't have... Sorry, they're both on 20. No. Oh, goodness, I'm falling down on the maths. Nadal <laughs> would be on 20, Federer on 19, and Federer wouldn't have a career slam. And nobody would be giving him much of a shout of completing it now. I mean, he's not even in the conversation, is he, at that stage? I mean, it's massive. Who would have won the 2009 French Open? Well, I think the answer is either Serdling or Del Potro. Yeah. Because Federer then had another five-set match, taking out Del Potro in the semis. We're pissing off Tommy Haas fans now. (laughs) No, we're not. (laughs) We're pissing off Tommy Haas. (laughs) (laughs) He's all right. He's presumably in Indian Wells having a nice time. Hmm. Yeah, I th- I thought you were going to mention the Andy Roddick Wimbledon volley, Matt. Yes, for sure. Although I, I've 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 always just considered that more of an Andy Roddick sliding doors yeah. moment. But yeah, it's it's in there, and I think it. If Federer hadn't won the French Open in two thousand and nine, a knock on effect would have been would he have won Wimbledon just a month later? Um, mm. But for sure, the Andy Roddick volley in that second set tiebreak is a is another sliding doors moment in Federer's career, yes. Um, but an mm. even bigger one for Roddick. I love a montage, a medley. I feel like all of that should have been set to some sort of like 80s piece of music. <laughs> you know, all sort of upbeat 80s films feature a montage of some kind, some sort of time-lapse situation. <laughs> yeah. Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at uh1.com. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. 
Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Hello, Tennis Podcast listeners. David here. Now, you might know that I love a bit of cooking, and I think I'm quite good at it. But if I'm honest, even I get fed up trying to work out what to do every night. That's where Home Chef comes in. Being able to put together a delicious meal without the long prep and the cook times, well, that's pretty cool. Home Chef provides fresh ingredients and chef-designed recipes conveniently delivered to your doorstep to simplify your cooking experience. They have over 30 options a week and serve a variety of dietary needs, so you don't have to worry about what to make ahead of time. Not only is it convenient, but it's economical too. Home Chef customers save an average of $86 per month on groceries. Now, for a limited time, Home Chef is offering tennis podcast listeners 18 free meals plus free dessert for life and, of course, free shipping on your very first box. Go to homechef.com slash tennis. That's homechef.com slash tennis for 18 free meals and free dessert for life. You heard it right. David, bring us down. (laughs) What have you got? uh, Yeah, well, I've got a Serena Williams one, which... um, I think the, there are a lot, a lot of choice, a lot of choices that we could have had for it, um, given the the seriousness of so many of her injuries. Um, but I, and given the fact that she is still one Grand Slam title behind Margaret Court, there are so many where you could just say, well, if that one had gone differently or that one, you know, she could have broken the record by now. Um, I've gone for 2010. She's just won Wimbledon, successfully defended her title. She's won the Australian Open and Wimbledon in that year, 2010. And she's gone to Germany and played in an ex- to play an exhibition match against Kim Kleisters. And in Serena's words, and we didn't hear these words for quite some time afterwards, we, we just knew, the only thing that we knew was that she'd injured a foot in... Uh, in Munich, and she was not going to be able to play certain tournaments for a while. Um, it turned out that uh, having gone to Munich, uh, she told the USA Today newspaper that she was in a restaurant and she trod on some glass, uh, initially thought she'd stubbed her toe, but looked down and there was glass all over the floor and blood all over the floor. She needed 18 stitches in her feet. Um, she thereafter missed the US Open, uh, the Australian Open, and the French Open. Um, Kleisters won both the US Open and the Australian Opens uh, that followed. So those are the three slams that um, Serena has just missed, and she's absolutely at her peak at that point. She's late 20s, I think 28 years of age. Um, and it would be two more years before she would win another Grand Slam title. She did return to Wimbledon the next year um, and uh, and lost in the fourth round to Marion Bartley. But in the interim, earlier on, just before that Wimbledon, uh, as well as the, the foot injury, she developed the pulmonary embolism, the, the blood clot, which, from what we are told could have taken her life and I think I interviewed her father at Wimbledon that year uh, and I remember interviewing him on the on the, the player lawn that they gather on all the players and their coaches and entourages and he said I thought I was going to lose her and uh, that was an incredibly powerful moment and he, there were tears in his eyes as he said it and uh, but m- there was a lot of mystery around what had happened in that restaurant and how she'd have 
come how she'd come to tread on broken glass and it was never fully explained i mean she she herself couldn't explain exactly what had happened she said i think i must have passed out um with with all all that went on but you know she was in in a real state and and, and missed all those grandson titles and when you think of how dominant she was back then um if she was playing her best and if she was fully fit she just used to win it was just a matter of course i think by then she'd won 13 grand slam titles um and it just felt as though she was going to go on and, and win many more now obviously she did do that but given the historical significance of where we are right now i just wonder had that not happened whether anybody would have stopped her at the US Open, the Australian Open that came to follow, and she could already have that record. It's a bit of a test of how much you believe in the the canister theory, I suppose. Did, did Serena Williams have sort of a finite amount of tennis in her and those two, those, well, those months, that year or so that was sort of taken out of her has, has been preserved for later in her career? Mm. Um, and motivation and all those yeah. sort of things. Mm. You never really know, do you? Um, and 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 like I say, there were many. You've chosen a number of Roger Federer moments there, Matt. I mean, there have been so many health issues, major knee problems. You know, the 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 blood clots, uh, all this sort of thing. There's so many that could have chosen, but that one always seemed so dramatic at the time, and it was so shrouded in mystery. And she was so by far the biggest star in the sport. Nobody came close. Yeah, because. As you say, whenever Serena missed a slam, that was an opportunity gone because she was the favourite for every single slam she entered at the time. And it it kind of carried on, didn't it? I know she reached... Didn't she reach the 2011 US Open final? Was that the one she lost to Stoza? Mm. But that was very yeah. much ahead of schedule, really. She wasn't in any sort of form or expected, really, to do that well. But then at the start of 2012... The Australian Open again. She was still out of form. That was the one where she lost to Makarova. As as Arenka was winning those two titles, and I mean that was another thought that occurred to me: Would Victoria Azarenka ever have won a Grand Slam had had mm. Serena Williams not stepped on the broken glass? Mm. You know, I mean maybe that's doing her a disservice. Maybe she's just good enough, and she was really good back then. Mm. But still, it does make me think wonder on that. But but then. It also makes me wonder about whether she needed, whether it was time away or a slump of some sort to then kickstart the rest of her career where she then mm. hired Patrick Muratoglu and mm. she must have won over 10 slams in her 30s, I think, you know, from that 2012 Wimbledon onwards. She then had probably the most successful run of her career for a few years maybe other than when she won the, the Serena Slam but would that have happened if she hadn't had that slump in 2010-11 caused by those injuries we don't know but certainly what we do know is that she missed an opportunity for a few years there to add to her Grand Slam tally. And there's also the what if not it's not an, an injury or a bad thing at all there's also the what if of if she hadn't had Olympia at the stage that she won her last Grand Slam Australian Open 2017 that glorious slam she was of course two months pregnant at the time with Olympia 
Um, she plays Venus in the final. Venus is one of the only people on the planet that knows she's pregnant at the time. Um, this is a little preview into the inevitable uh, Australian Open 2017 relived that we're going to be doing. Um, and she was she was imperious at that time, Serena. That was the last time, really, with the benefit of hindsight, that she has been completely imperious. And she would have been favourite to go on and win one or two further slams that year and seal the deal on the record. Um, she'd she'd likely have got, gone and done it that year. You know, if she'd just had Olympia a year later, you know, would she have come back from from having Olympia because she'd already have probably achieved. You know, I'm I'm this is sort of sliding doors upon sliding doors upon <laughs> sliding doors. But I guess with with a career as lengthy as hers, and this applies to Federer clearly, as we've just heard, there are going to be so many. Um, sliding doors moments but it's it's fascinating isn't it it's absolutely fascinating and of course the ultimate one that we're not talking about because it's sort of too soon because we're still in it and we don't we don't know all the things to speculate about but it's the pandemic isn't it the pandemic is going to be the ultimate sliding doors moment and we kind of need to see what ends up happening with Roger Federer and with Serena Williams in particular, maybe even with Nadal, before we even know what direction to take the speculation in. You know, if we never see Roger Federer play again, that will be, so the pandemic will end up being the ultimate Roger Federer sliding doors, won't it? But we knocked it around, didn't we, whether to do the pandemic, but it's just so big and so soon. Can you analyse a trauma when you're still in it? <laughs> therapists write in and tell us please at tennis podcast <laughs> i mean there's certainly some short-term pandemic related sliding doors that we could speculate on for example djokovic not winning another slam this year feels very pandemic caused halep maybe not winning a slam she was in incredible form but i guess what i'm most interested in with the pandemic is how it changes tennis for the long term not even player related but will tournaments disappear how different will the calendar look will the sort of relationship between players and fans change kind of the same questions we have about how how the pandemic will change life in general but it wouldn't surprise me if tennis looked quite different in a few years time and that we could we could point to the pandemic as the moment that things changed Mm. My um as I say, I was I was very tempted to to submit the pandemic as my my final offering for sliding doors tennis. And maybe when we come back to this in a few years years' time we we will. Um but in fact and maybe this is slightly inspired by uh by the little puppy that is currently asleep um on my lap. Uh very, very dutifully uh, in podcasting mode. Um, but my final submission is, what if Billie Jean King hadn't won the Battle of the Sexes in 1973? What if she'd lost that match to Bobby Riggs? Um, just to just to kind of remind you of, of the highlights. Um, yes, she'd already done a lot of campaigning done a lot for for furthering the cause of 
of women's tennis, women's sport before the Battle of the Sexes in 1973. I mean, it's a massive understatement to say that she had done a lot. She she campaigned for... Well, actually, in, in, it was in September 1970 that, of course, we had the formation of uh, the Women's Tennis Tour, that famous photo with the original nine holding up the $1 bills. They risked everything to do that. They were told by the, the US LTA that they wouldn't be able to play the US Open and, and Wimbledon if, if they did that. Of course, that is something that was is being celebrated this year, the 50th anniversary of that happening. Um and then two years after that, the culmination of of something that that Billie Jean King spent a long time campaigning for, um, which was um, Title Nine. Um, this was sort of her her foray in first foray into into real politics. Um, Title Nine was passed into law in 1972, and it stated that no person in the United States shall, on the basis of sex, be excluded from participation and be the, denied the benefits of or be subjected to discrimination under any education program or activity receiving federal financial assistance. Um, and this was massive. You know, there's countless statistics about the impact this has had over the last 48 years. But as of 2013, the number of female college athletes had grown 622% since Title IX came into force. Um, and in 1972, women uh, earned just 7% of law degrees and 9% of all medical degrees. And it's now um, more than 50-50, um, certainly for medical degrees, and it's it's 50-50 for, for law degrees. Then in at Wimbledon in 1973, so this is still before the Battle of the Sexes, um, the WTA was founded. Um, and of course, Billie Jean King led the charge for that. But interestingly, just before that, in May of 1973, that's when Margaret Court agrees to play Bobby Riggs. Um, and this is often forgotten. I mean, people that have seen the documentary or the, the Emma Stone film will probably will probably know about this. But it wasn't something I was aware of before before watching all of that. Bobby Bobby Riggs beats Margaret Court in 57 minutes, 6261. And it became known as the Mother's Day Massacre because that match took place on on U.S. Mother's Day. Um, and Margaret Court had been clear before that match. I am not carrying the banner for women's lib. She said, I am not representing women and the women's movement in this match, which lessened the wider impact of it slightly. Um, and it was after that loss that, that Billie Jean King agreed to play Bobby Riggs and she took on representing women and the women's movement in a way that Margaret Court was completely unprepared to. I mean, Margaret Court openly railed against equal prize money. She was absolutely not a figurehead for, for the women's movement at all. So after Margaret Court's defeat, she agreed to play Bobby Riggs and the whole hoopla is 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 whipped up um really stoked by by Bobby Riggs he starts wearing t-shirts saying male chauvinist pig on them um he's he gives birth to the acronym worms which stands for world organization for the retention of male supremacy 
Um, he told reporters at the time that he was playing in defence of young men who he claimed were being enslaved by women. He said, guys are getting married pretty s- Guys are getting married. Pretty soon they won't be able to get out once a week for a poker game, won't be able to go away for a weekend on duck hunting trips. So I don't care about myself, but we've got to stop these women right now. Um, And, you know, he wasn't (laughs) alone. He wasn't alone in saying that. Stan Smith, who was the Wimbledon champion in 1972. So, you know, his, his profile is high at this time. And he's not... He's not seeking publicity in the same way that Bobby Riggs was with all this stuff. He said, quote, a woman should stay home and have babies. That's what she's for. I mean, mean, I mean, this women's lib thing could go too far. And those quotes from both those two, they they remind me of the obviously they're they're stronger and they're dated. But they remind me of the a lot of the rhetoric that I've heard from, you know, pretty from a lot of men that would probably think of themselves as quite liberated in the past couple of years since me too um and since sort of the the big fifth wave feminism hoopla if you want to call it um which is the kind of yeah yeah, yeah i'm all for i'm all for for equality and i'm all for the women's movement but uh, it's gone a bit far women men can't even chat women up anymore without being accused of rape or sexual harassment or something that kind of let's just calm down women and not take it too far you know reading those comments that were made at the time they do they echo of that to me um and then just to kind of carry the sliding doors thing a bit further um apparently the night before um what is still the most watched match in in tennis history 100 million viewers tuned in for the battle of the sexes that is i believe still a record um uh, the night before the match billy jean calls her brother randy and um randy asked her if she was going to win and um, Randy was, he liked to a dabble in, in betting. And uh, Billie Jean replied, go ahead and bet the house, which is extraordinary, extraordinary to me. You know, Margaret Court, her great rival, had lost to him turn one in 57 minutes just months before. And Billie Jean King has a whole lot more riding on this than Margaret Court did because she is embraced the fact that she is playing for women everywhere, that she is playing for the whole women's movement, that she's playing for women's rights to be treated as as human beings. Um, so on 20th September, she, she plays that match. There are men everywhere in the audience wearing pictures with pigs on them saying, proud male chauvinist pig. Um, women are there with, with banners supporting Billie Jean, um, Billie Jean King is brought into the stadium on the shoulders of male athletes. Well, Bobby Riggs was was brought in by female models that he called his bosom buddies. Um, they exchanged gifts. Bobby Riggs gave her a lollipop, um, which she presented, and she presented him with a piglet wearing a little pink bow, which I absolutely love. Um, and she she embraced the fact that regardless of 
how successful she'd been, whatever else she did, she would be remembered for this match for the rest of her life. She took on that pressure. Um, and in, in an interview in 2017 with, with Vogue, she said, with the battle of the sexes, we were fighting for our lives. We were only in our third year of professional women's tennis. So I thought that if I lost that match, we'd probably lose everything. And a lot of other people thought that as well. I mean, women couldn't even get a credit card on their own in 1973. Um, she won um, in straight sets. It was um, one of the greatest spectacles of the women's liberation movement, um, featuring a woman who had always tried to argue much more for subtle for, for subtle equality. Um, this is also from that Vogue article. She said, you can see in my, with my interviews back in those days, I was walking this tightrope not to alienate. And that I find really interesting from Sliding Door's perspective as well. This match in this moment helped Billie Jean King find her voice and find her way to be a campaigner. You know, yes, she'd done a lot before then, but that tightrope was really evident. You know, she didn't want to call herself a feminist because she knew how many people that would would alienate she she knew that men set the parameters for discussion and she had to to play within those parameters you know the very fact that she had to engage in the battle of the sexes i mean we know it's irrelevant whether she can beat some has been it doesn't matter whether serena williams could beat roger federer that's neither here nor there and she knew that but she knew the world didn't care she knew that those were the parameters of the debate at the time and she had to lower herself to engage with them because women didn't have the power or the luxury to set those parameters themselves. Um, so it solidified her as a campaigner and as a symbol and it solidified, I think, her her comfort in that role. Um, you know, she... She says herself, I hadn't really found my voice yet back then. Um, and I had to speak differently in those times. She said, I had to think, how can I keep people involved in this important conversation? And it was all about adapting her message for her audience. And I mean, that's such a lesson that I've I've learned from her. I mean, not David will probably roll his eyes and say, I don't see this in evidence very much, but... You know, having to lower yourself to have certain debates, I just think, oh, I mean, for goodness sake, this is like debating with a child about whether Santa Claus exists. Like, why should I be having to ex explain to you why I'm a lesser, not a lesser human being? That annoys me. And the grace with which she she has done that throughout her whole career. You know, one of the things in the... This is just turning to me ranting about Billie Jean King with... with uh, the dog that I've named after her sat on my lap. But um, I, yeah, you can't stop me now. Um, in the words of a New York Times editorial, I'll just finish on this. Um, Billie Jean King was able in a single tennis match to do more for the cause of women than most feminists can achieve in a lifetime. Mm. My, uh, my son, before we started recording today, was asking what we were going to be talking about. And we were talking about sliding doors. And I said, my son's nine years of age. I said, we're going to be talking, one of the subjects will be the battle of the sexes. What if Billie Jean King had not won the battle of the sexes? And he said to me, if she hadn't, would there be women's tennis? 
And, uh, you know, I mean, that sounds incredibly dramatic, doesn't it? But it does make you think, really, that, that in terms of it mattering or in terms of it being taken seriously, in terms of it being what it is, which is the most powerful women's sport in the world, the, the best example of equality within sport, then, yeah, may, may well not be. Um, so, yeah, I, fascinating. I certainly don't think it would, it would, and look, hey, there's a long way to go, but I certainly don't think it would be as, as progressed as it is, as it is now. I think, I think she, she you know, I, I think of the words of Chris Clary saying what a head start tennis has on other sports. This, this head start that Billie Jean King gave to tennis and, you know, going off on a tangent how that's squandered in some quarters or not treated as preciously as it it ought to be and and so much of that head start was because of the result of that match and it oughtn't to have been of course everybody should have looked at it and gone but why does this matter but they didn't it did matter to people Mm. what I've always found interesting and also frustrating about the very phrase battle of the sexes is that it doesn't seem to me like it was because in a battle both sides have something to lose well the men had nothing to lose in that it was a completely pressureless match for bobby ricks you know he lost men's tennis didn't suffer at all yet if billy jean king had lost women's tennis women's rights women's sport would have suffered massively um and I found that really interesting what you said about Billie Jean having to even lower herself to take part in that occasion, which now we would think of as ridiculous and not necessary. And that's kind of the point, because I think by recognising that it was required to shift public opinion at the time, she took the the fight for equality in, in women's rights and mainly in women's sport to the boardroom, to the politics. And it can be tedious and frustrating, the politics of it. And sometimes we lament the lack of big, grand moments like the Battle of the Sexes for women's rights now. We we don't get that now. And sometimes that can feel a bit frustrating that people are not using their voice enough, perhaps. But the fact is now the battle is in the boardrooms and that's where the change happens it can be slow and it can be tedious but it's important that it's there now and it wasn't there when billy jinking had to do the battle of the sexes she took it there and all the progress that's been made since and there's a lot more still to make but at least the conversations are happening now and they're happening in the right places um and billy jinking is massively responsible for that i think it also gave her the the confidence and the the platform to to kind of move on and and campaign for LGBT rights as well, which is kind of what she's she's focused on latterly just as much as as um, as gender based campaigning. You know, had she had she lost that, as ridiculous as this sounds, and it shouldn't have been the case, but you know, would she have been given the credibility and the platform to to campaign on other things as well? You know, very possibly. Very possibly not. So perhaps all of that progress wouldn't have been made as well. Um, and I just, I think about those men in the 
in the T-shirts with bearing the words proud male chauvinist pig. And of course, those men didn't leave the Houston Aerodrome that day going, oh, I'm, I'm not I'm not a I'm not a male chauvinist pig anymore. But maybe they were shouting it less proudly. And and that matters. You know, I, I think a lot about, you know, what's happened in our country, in the States, in a lot of places in the world over the past few years. And are there are there more racists than there were five years ago? Has Donald Trump created racists? Um, and I, I, maybe he has a few, but I, I tend to fall down on thinking, no, he's just made people feel comfortable in their existing prejudices and existing small mindedness that in, in a previous world, they felt like they had to repress because it wouldn't be well received. You know, you couldn't just sort of rock up at a dinner party and, and, and shout racial slurs because oh that might not go down so well. Whereas I feel like there's a there's a comfort in people's prejudices these days, and there's a validation in them. You can you can spout them, and it will be treated, you know, it will be treated as you know everyone's entitled to an opinion, that sort of thing. And yeah, had she lost that day, maybe that comfort in in people's small-minded opinions would have perpetuated and who knows how long for. Um, but I, I, I think that, that maybe those male chauvinists were just a bit less proud about it after that day. And that, that mattered. Um, and it, it still matters. Um, and I hate to think, I hate to think where we'd be. I mean, not here. Also, I, 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 th- I think those that perhaps hadn't found their voices yet felt empowered. Yeah. Uh, that, that's something that struck me in the last year. And Billie Jean King has, has referenced Naomi Osaka and Coco Goff in the way that they have helped it become okay to speak out. Now is the time, she keeps saying. Now is the time to make a stand. You can. You can. And, uh, and I think that whilst you're not going to change everybody's mind by by that moment, that winning the tennis match, a lot of people, their attention would have been drawn to why it matters and why they need to do something about it or, or think differently or or give voice to what they're feeling down inside. Mm. And and just finally to pick up on what Matt said about how the, the stakes weren't, were so far from equal. I mean, there weren't any stakes for Bobby, Bobby Riggs. He said before the match that if he lost, he would throw himself off a bridge in California. And can you imagine if Billie Jean King had said something like that and then lost? How How often that would be quoted, how well known that line would be. And I don't think many people know that Bobby Riggs had, said that and no, not, not that. many people were then asking bobby riggs hey why aren't you throwing yourself off a bridge in california mate mm. sounds like he said a lot of things <laughs> he likes to say things just looking up he was 55 and that's that that was the worst thing about this whole well not the worst but it was one of the things that added strength to it is it, it, the the sheer disrespect being dealt out by beating margaret court you know a guy who is past it um just trying his absolute best to rub it in just to try and pull the wool over people's eyes 
it was grotesque and Billie Jean King would have found it grotesque. All those photos she had to pose for to promote it and she did it and she embraced it because she saw the bigger picture, she saw what she could do and that is, I mean, I couldn't do that. I couldn't stomach it. David's internally nodding here. <laughs> um, yeah, it, it blows my mind. But um, but thank goodness she did. Because what would my dog be called if she hadn't? <laughs> She'd probably be called something really rubbish, like, and I'm not going to finish that sentence because I've already offended people with slagging off horse names. Nobody with a, ho- nobody with a horse called Siobhan has written to us and uh and slagged me off yet but who knows <laughs> so there we have it sliding doors tennis the worlds that that could have been and the promise of a pandemic themed sliding doors tennis at some point in the future post pandemic um let's not speculate about when that might be because we don't want to end on a downer <laughs> <laughs> um but it's been fun hasn't it yeah, loads of fun. Well, the, the, the sheer fact that we thought we were going to do one episode and we ended up doing three. Um, so, yeah. Hey, that, this is our that, 150th episode, isn't it? Nope, 151. Nope. Did we do We've that? We celebrated 150. We, we, Catherine, we always do the one afterwards, so, you know, you can have your glory. It's fine. 151st episode. I thought that was a personal celebration between us. I forgot that we'd done it with the listeners as well. Oh, 151, what an achievement. Great, well done us. <laughs> we are we are plunging headlong into number 152 in a matter of days and that will be a two-parter about agro. Oh yeah. I've been waiting nearly 800 episodes for this. <laughs> <laughs> yes, it's an agro sp- special. The two-part agro sp- special. Uh, tennis's best ever aggro numbers one to nine will be David Law and Catherine Whitaker. (laughs) (laughs) That could happen. Um, yeah, I don't know whether it'll be a countdown. Do we want to limit ourselves to 10? Um, We've got some days to decide this. Yeah, there'll be a lot of, we'll, we'll hit all the, hit all the aggro notes. Don't you worry. Um, there's plenty of aggro to choose from. I'm sure I can generate some between now and Thursday if there isn't. Yeah. In which case, there might not be a podcast. I can generate aggro in a in an empty room. <laughs> Just give David a call. Um, so, yeah, that's for Thursday, episode 152. Um, and it'll be... No, it won't be our final one of... Will it be our final one of... When is it's the, the new year? It's the final day of the year. Is yeah. it? It's Thursday, New Year's Eve. Yes, Catherine. Yeah. Oh, and then it'll all be over. Yeah. Sort of. Thank God. I am going to wake up on the 1st of January and everything will just be fine, right? It's going to be a, a JR, it's all a dream thing. Yeah. Yeah. Except there Do will it. be a puppy asleep on my shoulder. I don't, I don't think Matt knows who JR is. Do you, Matt? No. No. It's actually Bobby. Bobby Ewing from is Dallas. It? Oh, sorry. Yeah. Yeah. I never we, watched it. I just. No, I. Well. It was an eighties, an eighties phenomena, Matt. And uh, yes, Bobby Ewing. Uh, we had an entire series about his his sad passing, 
and then okay yes uh, i'm aware of this yeah on on the, in the last episode after the the actor had agreed to come back to the show they needed to find a way to get him back in <laughs> because their ratings had dipped and so suddenly pam walked into the shower bobby's wife and there he was <laughs> <laughs> and she had had a dream and it turns out the whole series in which he'd not been alive had been her dream. So there we are. It's iconic. It's like um, Fonzie jumping the shark, isn't it? It's become a byword for um, plot device, for Sorry, rope, ropey fon- plot device. What, well, you, you know the phrase jump- jumping the shark? I, yeah, but I don't really know what it means. To jump the shark. You, do you know this, Matt? No, go on. Oh, to jump the shark is a... In fact, the Urban Dictionary can probably tell you this, David. Would would you like an opportunity to go on the Urban Dictionary? No, you'd just like me to tell you. The Urban Dictionary says thus, it's the beginning of the end. Something is said to have jumped the shark when it has reached its peak and begun a downhill slide to mediocrity or oblivion. It's said to have been coined by John Hein? Hein? who has a website, jumptheshark.com, and now a book detailing examples, especially as applied to TV shows. It supposedly refers to an episode of the TV show Happy Days in which Fonzie jumps over a shark on water skis, which Hein believes was the point at which the series had lost its touch and was beginning to grasp at straws. Sounds like this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> So Nobody's I believe listening. there's quite a famous episode of the of the X Files when keen listeners believe that 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 shark was jumped. Yeah, but I people don't... people will be pointing to this moment in this show. Yeah, as the moment it they won't know shark. David because they've switched off. <laughs> True, which in itself. So says on everything. that note, <laughs> we hope you've enjoyed. Um, and as as discussed, we'll be back one last time in 2020 on Thursday with Tennis's Best Ever Agro Part 1. Uh, thanks once again to everybody that has backed us in our Kickstarter for next year. It's trundling along. Um, it is a continual source of overwhelmment for all of us. If you'd like to get yourself an intro or a shout out or take us on in predictions. You can do all of those things. Um, just go uh, to our Kickstarter page. The details are in our show notes. And thank you once again to everybody that has helped us fund this show for 2021, which cannot be worse than 2020. What, the show? There you go. I've jinxed it. <laughs> Join us for one last 2020 pod on Thursday. We'll see you then. 
small body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.